What did Dr. Hudson have to do with this? It was he who taught me how to make contact with the source of infinite power. Now let me make you some coffee. If you mean is he balmy in the crumpet, yes. Hello once again and welcome to an episode of the IWMP, the Intermillennium Media Project Podcast. My name is Matthew Porter. And I'm Ian Porter. I'm his dad, he's my son, and I make him watch movies. Sometimes TV, sometimes read books, sometimes listen to records, but often I make him watch movies. Old movies. Yes. Weird <laughs> movies. <laughs> Bizarre movies. Unless Ian's taking over, they tend to be movies that were important to me in my youth, and that is the case here even though this is a movie that predates my youth by quite a few decades. I spent so much of watching this movie when you, when you put it on the, the docket. I went, spent so much wondering, how does he have a connection to this? What? And then, and yeah, then partway through it became, what about the movie? This is one of those movies that mom introduced me to. I had never heard oh. of, let alone seen. And she, it was one of a few movies that, and, we'll, and we'll, we're going to watch a few of those. One of a few movies that, that I had never seen, uh, Mrs. Darling Wife introduced me to. And I just found so intriguing and wound up meaning so much to me. But I okay. figured this was a good place to start with that category. That just moves my confusion. <laughs> Now that sounds like a 1970s prog rock album. Moves my confusion. <laughs> Move <Absolutely>. my confusion. <laughs> Move my confusion is like the best prog rock album. <laughs> oh goodness. But the movie we're talking about, we're talking about the movie Magnificent Obsession. But we're not talking about what is by far the most popular version of that. We're not talking about the 1954 Magnificent Obsession with Rock Hudson and Jane Wyman. We're talking about the first movie adaptation, the 1935 version. Starring Irene Dunn and Robert Taylor. Yes. And this was really, it was much, much closer to the, the novel's popularity and, uh, and publication. And this yeah. movie was really capitalizing on the popularity of this novel. Yeah, this is based on the the novel which came out in 29. Yep. So this came out only 6 years later, which is it feels a, like a more modern turnaround time with how places buy and produce the movie rights. But this proves that they've been doing that exact same sort of quick turnaround comparatively for a while. Right. On the one hand, now you've got agents out there who are pitching movie rights to novels long before the novel comes out. Not that that didn't happen back then. But mm -hmm. also, uh, now it generally takes longer to make a movie than it did under the studio system, where they could get a property and they've just had writers on staff and actors on staff and crank these things through. And yet out of that system, so many movies were generated. Some of them are gems. Whether this is a gem, I guess, is a, a matter of opinion. Mm -hmm. But it, it's fascinating to see this kind of movie come out of that system. This was directed by John M. Stahl, who also produced it. So... It seems to me that this was, even if it was a studio system product, it was, may also have been a labor of love on Stahl's part. 
I think so. And this was this was a big bit, a big piece for both of its lead actors, from what I can say. Yes. Both of them, it was relatively early in careers that are long and, and dense. Yes. I mean, Irene Dunn, her credits are so big, her credits have their own Wikipedia page <laughs> separate from her. Yep. Because she's been in so many things that they just split them up, which says a lot. Both very prolific. This was Robert Taylor's first leading role also. So this is what made him a movie star. Mm-hmm. He'd been uh, like, he'd been in other roles, but never the lead like this. Right, right. And Irene Dunn was, I think, better known for her, across her career, at least for her comedic roles. She was in a number of you know, screwball comedies and romantic comedies, uh, including ones that were made after this. But, uh, but this was very much a dramatic role. And it shows that she's got range, that she could carry uh, half of a movie like this as well. Oh, yeah. And this this is not a this is a drama film in the most pure sense. It could be called a romantic drama, I guess. Yeah, uh, it's, it's not comedy at no. all. It, this is this it, is this is pure drama. It's not without a few laughs. Yeah. And as long as we're talking about the cast, I've got to mention Charles Butterworth, who plays the he's kind of the, the comic side character and he that's sort of the role that butterworth played in so many yeah. movies and it, in a story where so many people are dealing with these dramatic heavy things he does allow that for a character to have the levity yes he he was such a a, a prolific character actor and his voice is so distinctive that mm-hmm. later on over at j ward studios another voice actor took butterworth's voice as sort of the model and the inspiration uh, for the voice of Captain Crunch. Oh. You've got to listen to Butterworth. You can sort of hear that that uh, that voice. I can. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> also, my own dark sense of humor coming in here. This is a movie for whom its dramatic uh, storyline has numerous car crashes in it and in my head when you told me that I'm just thinking <laughs> yes one of those car crashes then crunchitize me captain <laughs> oh no like oh no that happens and like oh I'm trying to make this funny no brain don't do that and the fourth main role in this is uh, uh, Joyce uh, Irene Dunn's character's sort of best friend. That's sort of a complicated we'll have to, sort of, to talk yeah. about. But that's played by Betty Furness. And Betty Furness. I grew up knowing Betty Furness as the consumer affairs reporter on the NBC affiliate in New York. And what? only later did I know that she had been a a, a prolific actress back in the, the 30s. and had later served on, she had some role in the executive branch in, in I forget which administration, uh, in uh, sort of a Lyndon consumer B. affairs position. Lyndon B. Johnson. In John- okay, then in the Johnson administration. Yeah. And that is what led her then into consumer affairs journalism. So that's an interesting and varied career, but to now go back and see yeah. her in movies is fascinating. And she also does get to play the character who kind of sees everything going down and gets to be 
almost the voice of the audience sometimes being angry at people being bewildered being nervous she gets <laughs> yeah. to step in and voice what the audience is feeling a lot of the time right she can go back and forth between expressing the bewilderment that we feel and uh, uh ladling a lot of exposition onto us so we have some ideas to what's going on mm-hmm. another aspect of this movie is that this is it's an early example of the I don't want to say self-help, but sort of the the spiritual principle movie. Things that yeah. the, and and of course that it, it ties into, you know, American New Thought and later New Age type things and positive thinking and mind metaphysics. And and you know, I could go down that rabbit hole for quite a while. But to me, you can look forward and connect it with movies like this and books like The Celestine Prophecy and things like that, or even you know, The Secret for all the problems that has. Mm-hmm. It it's a story, but one of the points of the story is to encapsulate and illustrate this this principle, this idea, and it's too, very often the stories that are used for that or that that people come up with for that are just not very good as stories. Here, I think the story itself is compelling enough that it sort of pulls you along, even though it's clearly illustrating this metaphysical principle. This does pull you along, and it's definitely got a lot of that. This movie is very awkward. Oh, in so many ways. Something that hit me like a freight train watching this film, and it's usually something we don't discuss until the end. Yeah. But when this was coming out, this was a a movie just released by the studios, and it was a standard thing. But I thought of what modern studio? would mm-hmm. release this movie now. Yeah. And I was bewildered that I kept coming back to Blumhouse. There's something <laughs> a little dark in this. It's like if Blumhouse wanted to do a happier film, I feel like it'd be Magnificent Obsession because there was just this wow. underlying creepy going on. <laughs> That's it's interesting. Like positive, positive self-help in a creepy world. Blumhouse. That I never would have thought of that because I know this is kind of dark, but I never thought of it as a a horror movie per se. It's not got people intentionally doing horrible things to people. It's not got. It's kind of. I, it's, it doesn't have supernatural unpleasantness happening to people necessarily. I guess not. But it's. I can I, understand what you mean about tone, though. Yeah, this is this is a guy who is on a really bad track in life. Robert Taylor's character, Robert Merrick. Hey, Robert is a. An absolute mess of a guy yeah. who kind of leans into his vices to avoid the guilt of both what he has had in the past and especially the early things that happened to him in this story. Yeah, he's the son of a rich kid. He's been in and out of schools because he doesn't really care. It doesn't really matter. And he's mainly wants is just a playboy. Mm-hmm. But we learn early on that that he he. he crashed a speedboat out on the lake and in so in, when he was being rescued the the pole motor machine the the lung machine that could be apparently used to resuscitate someone was being used uh to resuscitate him which means it wasn't available to resuscitate the doctor who was beloved by Everyone in Westchester County and apparently half the world and who had invented the machine and who had founded the hospital where both the 
Doctor and Merrick were and where the Doctor expired. There's just something wild about the, like, here, use my one working <laughs> copy of the machine I invented, since none of my prototypes are here, I guess, to save this patient, as I do. I am now going to have a problem that has the exact <laughs> solution of this device. Yes. Pardon me. Keel's <laughs> over. It's, it, it's very quick at the start. It is. That, the, the death is sudden for narrative reasons. And we never meet him. We never meet Dr. Hudson. Yeah. But between the story we get there and the reactions of everyone, he is so clearly set up as a Christ figure. Someone who dedicated his life to others and ultimately whose life was sacrificed to save someone else. Absolutely. But he's this selfless, brilliant surgeon, generous, generous philanthropist and loving husband. Yes. Loving husband of Irene Dunn's character, who was apparently yes. a whole lot younger than he. Yeah. And Dr. Hudson's daughter is not a whole lot older, maybe 10 years older than than Helen. Yeah. And they're sort of best friends, almost sisters. Yeah. Like, the, the, the whole initial yeah. car ride is a little bit of a, hi, sister mom. <laughs> yes. It's like, oh, my sorority friend is married my dad. <laughs> kind <laughs> because, of. Like, did we stumble into a TLC uh, program here or something? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's very. And it also very much starts out with that kind of like, oh, hey meeting you at the train high energy and <laughs> it it hits you with the oh yeah i heard that there was this guy who crashed a boat oh it's like this seems like it's going to be light-hearted jaunt and they get there and he's dead yes they were, uh, they were so happy um joyce was so happy to see her father for the first time in in who knows how long and he has just passed away it's like yeah just missed him Literally. <laughs> and very permanently. Yep. Oof. That, that, that sets the tone where it's things are looking bright and happy and then a dark thing kind of... Yes. Every time in this story. All these little whiplashes and switches. And we get kind of the same thing with Merrick. We then cut to Merrick in the hospital. He, he doesn't like the food. He's complaining to the... Uh, to the nurses, he's essentially being the, the bratty, no good, entitled playboy. And at the same time in there, he's told the doctor's dead. And his response is, I didn't ask to be saved. Right. Now I got that on my conscience. Ex yeah. Doubling down. He, early on, we see the fact that he is aware of his environment. Right. And yet chooses this path as an escapism and shoving back against the world instead of being an oblivious playboy. Right. He lets his guard down for a moment and explains that, uh, I'm sure you all think that it should have been me who died. You know what? You're right. It should have been, mm -hmm. but it wasn't. So, so you can tell he's got all this guilt yes. and he doesn't know what to do other than live down to their expectations. And then just to start the awkward train rolling, he sees a good-looking gal in the hospital and tries to you know, make a pass at her and is then told, that's the widow of the doctor that <laughs> saved you. Right. You know, the one that died that you were just having a breakdown about the fact that he died instead of you. 
and you can feel the awkward tension rise and it gets thick. He meets her first when he, he escapes from the hospital and is picked up by his, his valet or his butler. Oh, yeah. And they meet Helen on the side of the road as she's driving back to the hospital and her, her car is broken down. And he immediately turns on the charm and wants her number and, <laughs> and, uh, and wants to see her sometime. And, and there's this weird little, is she or isn't she interested meet cute thrust in here. And meanwhile, her husband is like, Less than a couple of weeks old, uh, uh, passed away, maybe days. Yeah. And, and that's the thing. There's sometimes from scene to scene, the tone shifts too much. Mm-hmm. But yeah, then, then he does, he gets, he goes back to the hospital because he finds out that's where she was going. And then he learns this girl he was hitting on is the widow of the person whose death he feels responsible for. And that's what this is. There's this stacking layers of like, meet cute uh. and that's like the the filling of this movie sandwich <laughs> and it just keeps layering one after the other because like dealing with this he lashes back out and goes drinking with his friend right and that's only after he has apparently continued to pursue her for some time yeah we get one thing this movie is not great about is we're not great at doing is letting you know how much time has passed because there's apparently a certain amount of time has passed. I'm thinking probably months when we mm-hmm. see that he is, uh, America is still coming to her home and looking to see her occasionally. And by the way, Tommy, the, the, the man that Joyce met on the boat back from Europe, uh, keeps coming and he's, he's wooing, um, Joyce. And the two of them are both shut out, partly because Helen insists she's not home whenever Merrick comes along. Uh, they go out and get drunk. <laughs> Yeah, and there's a little bit of a weird thing between Robert and Tommy. Yes, there of like, okay, so she married the the dad. Now she's legally Joyce's mom. You take the mom, I'll take the daughter. They're both the same. It's yeah. really weird, like bewildering stuff here. Very, and that's where very I'm like confusing charts to be drawn. There. Just gets just gets more awkward. But this definitely does have that kind of black and white film stage play similarity very when you're talking about that time stuff where it's the environments are there to set a scene and then the actors play their characters in that scene Mm -hmm. even with driving scenes and such the scene happens to be in a car but you could stage magnificent obsession the 1935 version as a stage play Pretty well, I think, oh. because it's a lot more about those interactions of people to people. Absolutely. So much of the film is just draw, uh, driven by dialogue. There are a f- may- one, maybe two action segments, which could be implied instead of shown. But yeah, mm-hmm. it's very, very dialogue heavy, very sta- soundstage based. And, and part of that dialogue, at least in this first third, first half of the movie, as you were saying before, it gets very dark because Merrick yeah. talks more and more about wishing to be dead yeah they 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 pull up next to a cemetery and look in and merrick starts telling tommy all about how peaceful that must be and i'd just like to just crawl in there with them and rest forever and not have to deal with anything in the world really really dark really dark merrick really starts to discuss like the concept of the death of robert merrick as the count as the person he is yeah and 
it turns out to top everything off, the guy who runs this cemetery is is was a friend of Dr. Hudson. Yes. Which just layers it on more. <laughs> well, it's like, OK, uh, play. It's a small world in in uh, the minor key here. <laughs> That's what you wind up the feeling of. It's like, I can't escape the man. It, it It's almost a little. The concept of Dr. Hudson is haunting Robert Merrick. Yes. And that's exactly what he tells this guy that he meets, Randolph, that I'm being haunted. Mm-hmm. And, you know, who's hospital? He, he, he dies and I don't. Whose hospital do I wind up in? Dr. Hudson's. And I meet this terrific girl. And who does she turn out to be? Dr. Hudson's widow. And I. I stumble into your place because I need a, a ladder to save my friend from the comic drunk sequence we had just a moment ago. And I meet you, who's a, a pal of, of, of Dr. Hudson, and you've got a statue of him right there because you're a monument carver. I can't win. This guy's haunting me. Mm-hmm. It really, it, it, it begins to suggest that, yeah, there is something spooky going on. There is something supernatural going on, which sort of leads into what he learns from Randolph. And that's where I started thinking that like the super, there's almost something supernatural here. There's almost something in that kind of vein, which led me to that pondering in terms of the modern version. Mm -hmm. But he actually never goes and gets his friend out of the pit his friend (laughs) fell into. No, he's just been sitting there drinking and whistling in the bottom of a ditch. But Robert Merrick falls asleep amongst the gravestones. Yes. After being told a philosophy that the doctor lived by, which mm-hmm. is to give and be like philanthropic to others, but never be known for it. And that life will give you your rewards for doing so. And when Robert Merrick wakes up the next day, it is the most calm, coherent and on top of things we ever have seen Robert Merrick in this movie so far. Yes, the, the, this philosophy that, that Randolph learned from Hudson and that Randolph then shares with Merrick is it's based on that passage from Matthew, from the Gospel of Matthew about, you know, do, uh, do not do your alms before men where they can see them. Do, every, all, do good for others and do it in secret. Yeah, so there is, there is a Christian inspiration for this, but part of Randolph's pitch to Merrick is that, oh, yeah, it's, it's in the Bible, but don't let that, the fact that it's in the Bible shouldn't diminish your view of it. All I'm asking is you give it a try. Exactly. And he has this very intricate, detailed, very tactile explanation of the whole thing. And that mm-hmm. it's not just a to, be a, to be a better person, do good to others, and don't do it for um, for thank yous or for accolades or uh, you do it all in secret. But it's a very much if you do this, then the universe will give you the grace and power to get to accomplish what you want to accomplish. Yeah, you can he, tap into this source of great power. Right. So there is a it's not an altruistic message, at least no. the way Randolph initially presents it. It's a. It's a quid pro quo kind of message. Yes, you're doing good for others, and that is inherently good. But if you do this, you will get this ability and power and grace. Yeah. And we see Robert now kind of intrigued by this. Follow that. Go out into the street. Interact with people and 
the first man he just gives some money to who asks him for a for dollar. He pulls him off to the side, gives him a lot more and says, don't tell anyone I did this. Yep. And immediately. Miss Hudson is yeah. seen there again, and he's like, wow, the world's already doing it. The person he's been wanting to see and who's been avoiding him is suddenly right there. And that's where this is a. You know, is that the reason to do good is so that you get a, a you get a reward immediately after that? Hi, if I'm altruistic enough, I can <laughs> right. stalk her better. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's it's like. Uh, <laughs> um, and that's one problem with this movie is that for, for too much of the movie, Helen is a prize to be won or exchanged or something. You know, she's. Oh, yeah. Hudson, Dr. Hudson got helen as his wife because he followed this this uh this practice and now merrick gets a chance to talk to her again because he followed this practice she's just sort of an object at this point and and she's not happy with all of robert's advances she no. finds him attractive but she's bothered by this yes it's like there's this little question in the back of my mind is like helen needs to run over to the side and like do some charity work and the <laughs> universe will give her not dealing with Robert Merrick. again. <laughs> it's like you could wind up in this weird little charity battle, according to the philosophy of this. And they're just coyote and roadrunnering each other with, with philanthropy, <laughs> making donations to the Acme company instead of uh, purchases. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, this is going really awkwardly, but yep. Robert keeps like, trying and getting his way a little but the yeah. sc- <sighs> but like this is yeah there's this really m- meeting weird. with with uh with helen and he pers- does he he persuades her to let him drive her home instead of her getting a taxi mm-hmm. and you're right she he, he sort of hustles her into this and she's not really like you say she's not really happy about it and Eventually, they stop. He pretends to have run out of gas. He's he's just still. He may have tried Doctor Hudson's uh, method once now, a few hour, yeah. an hour before, but he's still really creepy. He's still really creepy. He almost actually turns the creepiness up yes. here because he thinks he's got this source of power and control. He gets more disturbing when he he thinks he's got it all right, and she quite sensibly. When he tries to stop with her on this deserted road, gets out of the car immediately. Uh, but that does not go very well. No, because another car hits the door and smacks her into the car. And she falls knocked unconscious by this. And that's a shocking scene because it's so that abrupt is, and so, it so it's, abrupt. it's uh, totally untelegraphed, unpre- uh, mm-hmm. unexpected. It's like, wait, wait, I expected her just to, to say, mean, th- say, say, you know, put him in his place and, and run away. And then this happens. It's really shocking. Yeah. It, in, 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 in a very realistic way, it interrupts a moment between people with yes. the environmental tragedy of this. Right, right. But also for a story that has had so many vehicular issues, we've had a boat crash, we've had a car issues, we've had... I think second set of car issues that got them to the cemetery or at very least drunk driving. Mm -hmm. And now we've got an attempted creepy pickup that is immediately cut off with a car accident. It's thematic. 
Yes. This <laughs> like like an like a uh, an anime attempting to send their main character to a fantasy world <laughs> as abruptly as they can. This has a vehicle and knows how to use it to move its plot along, but it's very abrupt in yes. doing so. My goodness. And we learn shortly after that that she um she's had a serious head injury. It's resulted in a a a a brain injury or I think it's a, a broken bone impinging on her brain. Mm-hmm. She's going to be okay, except that she is not going to be able to see again. She has lost her yeah. sight. Hmm. And the losing her sight becomes such the key point of the rest of the movie. Yes. That is kind of the, the driving factor of, of the, the rest of this movie in, in many ways. Because then we cut to some time later, she has yeah, re- recovered from, from the injury, and you can tell it's a while later, partly uh, again because of the wardrobe. And speaking of mm-hmm. wardrobe, they had her wearing white far too soon after her husband passed away, just in terms of what would have been done back in the yeah. 1920s or 30s. She was... Not that Irene cool. does not look great in white. It just did not work for the character. Yeah, it was. It, it, it felt very sudden. It felt like she was moving on quickly. Yeah. But now it's been a while, not only since her husband passed away, but also since the, the accident. And she is, it has adapted to life as an unsighted person. Mm-hmm. She's got her cane. She is attempting to learn Braille and having mm-hmm. some trouble with it. Yeah. I love that whole bit. First of all, the fact that she has this beautiful parasol that she's using as a cane. Mm-hmm. And also the fact that she's meeting with this little girl in the park across the street, because the little girl's learning how to read, and mm-hmm. Helen's learning how to read Braille, so they have copies of the same book, one of them in Braille, and they kind of take turns reading lines. That's just adorable. I love that. That is. And then the little girl can't pronounce one of the words. Yes. And so she goes over to the guy who always spends time in the park as well. And of course, and it's Robert, it's Robert Merrick, who has been, I don't know what the term is, stalking, watching over, there's a fine line there. We did see, though, that when Helen loses her sight and he is told about this, his response is to talk to people about moving funds and uh, making sure that some of his investments go to her instead and things like that. Yes. And we ki- we get to watch as he starts in the background manipulating stuff to make sure that she'll be okay. And always and, insisting that it be totally secret because he's following right. Dr. Hudson's principle. And we kind of get to see him start to help Helen as a way to both make up for the guilt he feels about what happens to her, he kind of acknowledges, wow, if I hadn't been attempting to pick her up like that, she wouldn't have been there to be hit by the car. He puts that on himself and then wants to fix it in secret. Yes. Under this policy. And yet there and is also, there is, you get the sense that Merrick has matured a great deal when we see him now yes. in the park. And mm-hmm. he has been. He's been chastened by what happened, and he feels, as you say, he feels a lot of guilt. I also think he still admires Helen greatly. Yes. But he does not, it's not really his place to act upon that. But he's definitely matured and subdued a great deal. And this is where we start to see some of the range of Robert Taylor playing this character. 
who changes so much over the course of this movie. And we get to see him as Robert Merrick here. But we also get to hear a bit about what he's done in this meantime, in this yes. time skip we've gotten, which is he started to try to go to medical school. Uh-huh. He didn't complete it yet, from what I understood. From right. What he, said. he was sort of studying medicine when he was kicking around schools and getting kicked out of schools when he was a playboy. Mm-hmm. But now, apparently, he's begun to take it more seriously. Yeah. And he's not, he's not there yet. But but through this little girl, he winds up being introduced to Helen, and he does not let on who he is. A little slight misunderstanding in the introductions leads her to be calling him a Dr. Robert, and he mm-hmm. goes along with that. And, he, and she says, your voice sounds familiar, and he denies it. Yes. I guess to not be known. Right. But it adds to the little bit of the creepiness that he's now interacting with her again but she doesn't know it's the guy who was trying to hit on her like hitting on her when she got the injury that took her sight that's right he's playing somebody who uh, at least based upon the way that he's being played is now well-intentioned and yet he's still sort of taking advantage of the inability of a blind person to identify him yeah yeah It, it it gets creepy again yeah and you get the feeling that he's also been doing some other philanthropic things because, you know, when he's moving money around to say to help her, he's got these other things that he's putting money towards. Yeah. And you get the feeling that there's that he's intentionally kept his name out of it, but he's starting to get a bit of a reputation for being this, this kind and philanthropic guy that mm-hmm. is starting to form around him. Right. He's, he's putting his money into places where it's going to do good for people. And and part of that is being in touch with the best brain and and vision specialists in the medical world, Mm -hmm. such that he arranges for her to go to Paris. He he arranges for her to get this surprising invitation to go to Paris, where there's going to be this uh, uh, conference, uh, this medical conference where the top specialists Mm -hmm. in the field are going to be, and they'll be able to examine and consult on her case. And if anybody can cure her and bring back her sight, it'll be these guys. And there's this whole awkward bit where she's like, there's this, this conference of doctors who are going to be together for this event have invited me as a, as a patient they want to look at because if any, and he's just like, well, if anyone can, then doctor this and doctor that absolutely can. How did you know they'd be there? Well, if it's a conference uh, yep, of the, the best, best, then it must be them. <laughs> and she buys it. And it's so she awkward. does. It makes sense. It does. I guess. But this yeah. is also where Joyce gets to come back with her friend and see how Helen's doing. And there's Robert sitting in right. Helen's uh, living room. And Joyce almost pops a gasket there. Yeah, she doesn't immediately call him out for Helen's mm-hmm. sake, but then she lets into him as soon as he makes his his uh, uh his exit and you know what what are you what what are you trying to do what do you expect to happen if she does regain her sight and sees that it's you all along isn't this terrible because hell uh, joyce has been hearing about this this delightful man that helen has uh has now been spending time with and now she yeah, finds out it's robert joyce Perry. is like bewildered because it's like Oh, Helen is head over heels for this go. No, it's you kind of moment. <laughs> right. Yep. It, it adds to the level of someone else. This is where I say she gets to be the audience surrogate in that she gets to kind of come in and say, 
do you not realize this is wildly creepy? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. It's like Joyce is the only one to recognize how just how weird this is. And she she walks in and just like, hold up. (laughs) What am I seeing? (laughs) (laughs) It turns into they go to Switzerland and all these top doctors say it's too risky. We couldn't do anything. Her sight is forever gone. Mm -hmm. And yeah, her hope was up. And now it turns out they say, you know, I'm sorry, we cannot operate. Mm -hmm. They say that sometimes vision comes back in these cases, but there's nothing yeah, we can do. Technology isn't there. We're not good enough. We can't do it yet. Right. Um, and this just crushes her because she had, after having adapted to being sightless, now she, she, uh, her hopes have been raised and dashed. And with all with with her, her sight completely gone, no way to actually heal her. Robert finally admits to her who he is. In, and that's after a great scene. I like that. Okay, what's the scene you're... Because I'm... Well, when he, he shows her Paris, mm-hmm. he, he, he shows up as Dr. Robert, has heard the terrible news, but now he wants to... He, he explains how much he cares about her. He wants to show her Paris, and they have this wonderful walk through Paris as he describes everything to her in these beautiful ways. And she is happier than we've seen her in a long time, especially since a few moments before, I think we saw her contemplating suicide. Yeah. Back in the hotel room when she was at her lowest and she was realizing that she's never, she's thinking, I'm never going to see again. I'm a burden to everybody. She like opens the, walks over and opens the French windows on their upper floor uh, hotel suite. Yeah. And that's like really dark and, and, before she gets to do anything, he's at the door wanting to uh, to cheer her up and take yeah. her out. And he takes her out on the town. He like describes everything he's seeing. He it's the classic you know, blind romance scene. Let's be honest. Yeah. And that's actually kind it of is. nice. It's suddenly it, it doesn't undo his creepiness, but he's less creepy he's than he less was creepy there. And then and finally, at the end the, of that, the, like the way saying, he does the confession, I thought was creepy again, where he's like. In a place oh, yeah? this beautiful, and you could feel anything. You could let everything get better, right? Yeah. Oh, you could forgive anyone you anything. You could forgive anyone you. anything. I think I might be able to. You could, could forgive Robert Merrick, and you watch excellent work from Irene well, Dunn. Well, she, it turns out that she guessed she earlier. She did, but there's this, there's... That, yeah, I could even, I could even forgive you, Robert Merrick. Yeah. There's this brilliant, this, this, this like reveal moment is well acted, but still yes. weird as he prompts her towards the forgiveness. Exactly. It's kind of a, a surprise on his part, a, a surprise to him that she had figured it mm-hmm. out. But still, the fact that he gets there by sort of setting things up to get a forgiveness. Yeah. Here. Um. Uh, yeah, that, that's, that is kind of creepy. And yet she seems very happy. Yeah. She forgives him. She, but she does, she, she does not want to marry Which, him. Because he, like. He, he's like, yes. So all this time it's been me. Thank you for forgiving me. Will you marry me? I forgive you. I do love you. Next day. There's a note saying, but I can't be with you. And she's left. And the reasons she gives are that she doesn't want to limit him and be a burden to him. And it's all, it's nothing about the fact that 
yeah, yeah, I forgive you. Yeah, I care for you. But every day I'd be thinking about uh, the fact that my my former husband is dead and I can't see <laughs> and you're wrapped up in all yeah, of that. Yeah, it's like, mm. it's no, I don't want to be a burden to you, Robert Merrick. Yeah. And then they do another time skip. And this time skip cinched what I thought I felt was happening in the weirdest way. Yes. Oh, before that, I do have to acknowledge, though, Tommy and Joyce, Tommy's persistence pays off. I don't know how creepy he got, but his persistence pays off. Tommy and Joyce are married. Yes. (laughs) They were both in Paris for their honeymoon Mm -hmm. at the same time. So they're together. (laughs) Oh, boy. It's just nice to see that character of Tommy show up again. They, They kind of have a nice little side romance alongside this weird one. Yeah. But it's six years later. And Robert's coming home after becoming a Nobel Prize brain surgeon. Yeah, he was like just out of med school. And now he is a the, the world's top neurosurgeon and a Nobel laureate. Like he's like he's like invented new systems and methods. Which I don't think even in 1935 things happened quite that fast. I know, I'm, but you know. It, in the weirdest way, they've already implied that there's this like cosmic scale balancing. So I'm just thinking like he's doing ph- philanthropic things to become a better doctor, to do philanthropic doctor things, which makes him a better doctor. There's this weird like Dragon Ball Z kind of power leveling out <laughs> in the desert going on, but instead it's this like European tour of a of doctor doctoral ability that he does and that is kind of consistent with the way this mystical principle was presented at the beginning i i got the impression at the beginning was that dr hudson had been able to accomplish so much because he gave so much which allowed him to give more and and it does sort of it does have this exponential growth which i guess is part of the point they're trying to make once you get started in this if you follow it through sky's the limit yeah what if charity donation had the bootstrap paradox strapped to it? You can charity donate your ability right. to charity donate bigger. <laughs> right. Gets a little wild because it's six years later. He's a prize winning brain surgeon and he learns that this woman desperately needs an operation and it's Helen. He learns that from Randolph. Yes. Who meets him at his house and says, you know, I. I've been tracking your career. It seems like you've taken that uh, that lesson from from Dr. Hudson that I shared with you to heart, and it's wonderful. Here's somebody else you can help. This woman in Virginia who who desperately needs an operation. She was blinded in a car accident. <laughs> it's like and oh yep. And and meanwhile, he's been like having investigators and every, people trying to find Helen. Yeah, who has gone off with her her maid to live in seclusion and and uh and that is hide from anybody who knew her uh, that is a dedicated maid yes. <laughs> like, hi we need to go off grid and you're blind that takes something but they did it <laughs> wow i almost imagine the maid like saying just a minute and then going down to the basement like john wick and digging up the gold and the fire <laughs> oh, and saying, i've been waiting for this moment miss helen <laughs> exactly there's this whole like because she is she is effective he has like become this famous surgeon and he still can't find her until now yeah randolph's just like hi i have info and randolph doesn't seem to know that this is anybody who had any previous connection to uh to Merrick, it's just somebody who needs help, and Merrick is mm-hmm. the person who can help. Yeah, it's like, hey, can you help this the the, the widow of my friend? It's like, 
boy if you're like man if you knew how much <laughs> i've done and worked on involving helen hudson my goodness <laughs> it could fill multiple multiple minutes of a long play uh but of course his neurosurgeon skills are top notch and he performs the surgery and gives her back her sight yes and they are implied to go off happily ever after because of that and in the surgery scene he almost can't do it he almost it's can't time do it. for him to operate he starts getting the shakes and he can't do it and then he gets this look through the window from randolph who is randolph is is sort of the angel figure here who imparts the divine wisdom and oh, gives yes. the divine reassurance and we meet randolph in his carving studio surrounded by literal marble angels yeah, yeah the the, the the Randolph stare calms his nerves and he's able to perform the surgery. But it does end with Helen going to go get married to a brilliant surgeon who is a selfless, generous philanthropist. Yep. Kind of full uh, circle there, huh? Yeah. Remember when I said Merrick fell asleep in a graveyard and woke up more competent (laughs) than we ever see him in the movie uh, from any point forward? And he had just been talking about being haunted by Dr. Hudson. There's this really weird Robert Merrick as the man died and he became the new Dr. Hudson kind of thing going on. Hudson's kind of a walk in who's piloting Merrick through the world. There's a little bit of a weirdness there. Oh, I see the Blumhouse angle. now. That's what I'm talking about. Like that (laughs) whole thing was just weird as it's like the Robert Merrick personality was being replaced slowly in this strange way. Interesting. I always thought of this as just this new thought, positive mind, metaphysics parable. I never quite thought of it as a it's you know a go a, a literal ghost story. It's kind of a literal ghost story. It's like, <laughs> hi, I feel guilty that I kind of am responsible for your husband dying. Allow me about one decade, and I will metamorphize into him to replace him cosmically. Yes. Oh. And if it is like the literal spirit of Hudson, it's not. Well, I take you over and kick you out, but it's a. I take more oh. and more hold over time yeah. now that you've fallen asleep next to my graveyard. Or, or if you don't want to be the ghost, the ghost angle, there's just like whatever the great, f- the force and power he taps into hmm. needed a Dr. Hudson, not a Robert Merrick. And so it changed him into what it needed instead. He became the avatar of whatever the same thing that Dr. Hudson was being an avatar of in the world. It, it has that kind of I can tilt the entire film and I see it from that little bit of an angle and there's that strange through line. I think we're getting towards final things there. So, yeah, I think we are almost at our final questions. But before we get to the final questions, if you would like to support the Intermillennium Media Project, you can do that by going to our Patreon. Uh, you can find a link to our Patreon at www.immproject.com. And uh, you can also support us if you like T-shirts and coffee mugs and notebooks and things like that. Oh, coffee mugs like this. Yeah. Uh, you can go to our shop there. Do you care about Phobos? <laughs> yes. If you don't care about Phobos, we've got a T-shirt for you. Exactly. If you like the sport of Kosho from The Prisoner, we've got a T-shirt for you as well. Oh, show. 
And uh, but of course, the best way to support the the uh, the podcast is let people know about it. Let your friends know about it. Give us ratings and and, uh, and reviews on iTunes. And, and if you'd like more, I'll go ahead, Ian. And send us messages. We'd love to hear yes. if, if, if you've got an interpretation of a movie we've seen, if you've got a movie that you think might be somewhere in my dad's catalog of, of things to watch or you want to check about, send him a message. Send us a message. For all you know, yeah. it might spark a new episode for us. Absolutely. You will find a contact page over on www.immproject.com as well. And uh, if you want more of the IMMP podcast, you will get additional audio content and maybe some video content if you subscribe uh, via Patreon. But on our, our website, you'll also find all of our back episodes, over 100 now. Oh, yeah. And Ian, where can people find you? I can be found as Item Crafting on YouTube, Item Crafting Live on Twitch. And you can find me at bymatthewporter.com. You'll find a link to whatever I'm doing there, including a link to my YouTube where you will find the Draft House Diary movie and movie theater reviews and other videos like my trip to the Roswell UFO Festival. <sighs> but now I do think it is time for our final questions. Magnificent Obsession, the 1935 version with Robert Taylor and Irene Dunn. Screen or no screen? I think I'm going to say no screen. Oh, just any particular reasons? Do you want a, a, a more awkward <laughs> romance version of It's a Wonderful Life? If so, <laughs> why? <laughs> why? <laughs> this was just the, that underlying dark feeling made this watch creepy for me. I could yeah. understand all the positives. I could understand the attempted uplifting message. But this is one of those black and white films that just has this air to it that was deep and unnerving to me. And I could not dive in deeper. And that it's a wonderful life metaphor. It really did have some of that feeling. Yes. But. It's a Wonderful Life felt, feels like the polished version of the positive <laughs> message that this is. And I don't know if I needed this one. That's a great point. At least in, uh, in It's a Wonderful Life, we see George Bailey spend his life doing good for others. But we don't see him being told ahead of time, hey, if you do good for others, good things will happen to you. No, he's just a good person doing good things. Yeah. With Robert Merrick, it sort of undermines it that he's... He's told to keep it secret, but he's also told at the very beginning, if you do good things for others and keep it secret, you'll get all of this grace and power. Exactly. And, and we also hear Robert Merrick doing a lot of things good. We see him do some mm. good things to help Helen, but there's an implied a lot of other philanthropic and kind things he does, but they're not shown. Right. The only other time we see him helping someone other than Helen is the time he gives a guy cash and he does so by pulling him over <laughs> to the side and making it seem so much shadier than yes, it needs that, to be. Like, suddenly it looked like it would be a very weird proposition he's going to make or something. Like, yeah. Hey, you want more money? I've, you have to do something for me though. Like, hi, uh, I've got uh, a scheme. It's very, yeah. it's vaguely pyramidal is almost <laughs> what it felt like the pitch was about to be. Yes. But it's, it's not. And so it's just weird. You've got to take a lot more of everyone else's word that Robert's gotten better. 
Yeah, I would have to say if if you have an appetite for melodrama, this is a definitive melodrama. I still say screen, and I know that I'm in the minority here because everything you've said about this movie, Ian, I, I acknowledge you're you're not wrong about any of it. Thank you. I just have this soft spot for these movies that present something as in, hang on, everybody can relax. I figured out the universe. Here's the principle. I can state it with a metaphor about an electric stove. <laughs> and and then we see the story take over from there. I don't know why I enjoy that kind of movie, even ones that are made far, far less confidently than this is. The fact that this fits that sort of movie that I, for some reason, enjoy, and it has such great performances in it, and it's directed very well. I, I would say screen. If anything that I've said sounds interesting, I would say screen it. I can completely understand respect for, a, for a, any piece of media that is in the hard sci-fi or fantasy and properly explains its mechanism, which <laughs> I guess this becomes. I guess. So, yeah, we've got a split decision on the screen or no screen. Mm-hmm. This is a very complicated film about which to ask revive, reboot, or rest in peace, because we've already mentioned there is a much better known remake from 1954 yes. starring Rock Hudson and Jane Wyman. And it's another one based on a book. So that means that there's yes. an entire other version, possibly a, a deeper version that has scenes that were cut out for this film yep. of this narrative. So if you're going to remake it, you've got another source. True. And I don't know to what extent the, the Rock Hudson, Jane Wyman version is a brand new adaptation of the novel, or is it more of a remake of the 35 movie? Yeah, I think we might have to watch that. We might have at some to. point. Yeah, stay oh. tuned uh, on Patreon. Yeah, but hmm. But what do you think? Does it? Could it? Uh, what would you think of a other a remake or a uh, or a uh, revival today? I don't know what a revival would look like. The yeah, the the children of the the grandchildren of Doctor Merrick and uh, and Helen is, is someone finding like a book that. Robert wrote oh, yeah. explaining the system and explaining, I mean, you could, that's true. It's not, he's not the only vector for this idea. He's not. So here's the thing. Like you could do the, you could do the, the remake mm. set during this time, but with newer filming. Yeah. You could do the remake. That is the modern retake, which is something I like to pitch on this show. Figure out yeah. what happens if you slide around time scale. Mm -hmm. And Every time I try to move this forward, communication technology makes this get creepier. <laughs> yes. It's like the guy who can like change stock portfolio things to help her and find her again by searching up her IP address or something just gets really weird quickly. <laughs> right. yeah, you get what I mean? It does. So it I does. don't I feel like moving it forward inevitably leads to the darker Bloomhouse version. And uh, that leaves the the later generation version of this story, which I could see either going in a brand new story about someone finding out that this system works and gaining that power again, using the Magnificent Obsession story as the the origin for the power, but telling a new story. Yeah. Or I could see 
the sequel that messes with the the original. Hmm. Where if I'm if we've already kind of said multiple times that there's something a little off about the you'll get your reward aspect to the way this is presented. Mm-hmm. Adding a but you didn't like there is still a different cost or there isn't it doesn't go perfect. Kind of the the happily huh. ever after wasn't right. You could do the it then all falls apart version. It would very it would be a very different story and would use this as a starting point that leans into the darker and leans into the Robert never learned his lesson properly. Oh, yeah. But you could do that with this. I thought I had life figured out and it turns out I was wrong and then it fell apart again mm-hmm. kind of thing. But that's also still a very different story. And I don't know if. If this is the right soil to plant that story in, if that's the good source of it, I can yeah, see I mean, it works, but I don't know if it's needed. Yeah, it would be an interesting story. It would undermine so much about this story. I'm yes. not sure that it's, it's needed to be told in this context. I'm inclined to say rest in peace, although a prequel could be interesting. Oh, the Dr. Hudson story? In which we get the story of Dr. Hudson. I don't know that it would contribute much, but it could be interesting at least. It could be interesting. Yeah. I think it's a rest in peace as well, though. Right. Hmm. One question, though. Yes. Did you catch the, the very clear explanation in the movie of what, it, what does Magnificent Obsession refer to? I don't remember. Because a lot of people see this movie, they see, oh, and it's a love story. It's, it's the love is the magnificent obsession. He spends his life obsessed with her. It is explained, I think, by Randolph. The magnificent obsession refers to Dr. Hudson's relationship with this metaphysical principle. This was his magnificent obsession throughout his life to help people and do it in secret so he would have more power and grace. To do more things. Okay. I have a feeling that the 1954 version might, might not quite get that because that is seen from everything I've seen about the promotional stuff from the, for that movie. It is so much more wrapped up in the romance. Hmm. Yeah. But I think for this, we've got a, we've got a split decision on the uh, screen or no screen, but it seems like we're both saying, we're both saying rest in peace, which puts us in an odd position relative to that 54 remake. It is. I'm, like, yeah, I'm did, interested did, to know what that is, especially because yeah. just film in 54 was so different. Oh, yeah. Than 35. That's 20 years later. And. There is just a change in how media gets presented. Right. I'm, I'm fascinated to see what that difference is. The very fact that when I wanted to get this movie. In order to get the 35 movie, I had to get the Criterion DVDs of the 54 movie. Oh, wow. Because the 35 movie was an extra. One of the extras on disc two of the Criterion version of the Rock Hudson Jane Lyman movie. Whoa. <laughs> that shows you, you know, where these two movies are relative to one another in the culture. Yeah. The- <laughs> This one has a, a, a much deeper shadow. Yep. Hmm. Well, but I think that's going to be it for this, uh, for this episode. I think so. 
We will be back with more tales of media from the 20th century, sticking in, I'd say, a related sort of genre here for the next movie. Okay. We're, we've gotten into a vibe. I can get, I can keep going. Yeah. yeah. So I hope uh, you'll, you'll join us in two weeks for that. Thank you very much for listening. In the meantime, go find something new to watch. <laughs>